Lead to Win is brought to you by Leaderbox, a monthly reading experience curated by leaders for leaders. Learn more at leaderbox.com. On January the 25th, 1966, Sir Charles Snow stood before Congress and spoke about the cybernetic revolution. He was talking about the computer revolution, which was then just beginning. Lord Snow declared, This is going to be the biggest technological revolution men have ever known. And within a few years, that prediction came true. Information technology brought sweeping changes to every aspect of life. Beginning in the 1970s, American business made huge investments in IT. Just as the Industrial Revolution had supercharged manufacturing, now the Digital Revolution would transform commerce. Computers would do the work of humans in a fraction of the time. Productivity would skyrocket along with profits. There was just one problem. The gains in productivity failed to materialize. In fact, productivity growth fell in the 1970s and 80s from about 3% to just 1%. That dramatic decline led economist Robert Salo to observe, we see computers everywhere except in the productivity statistics. This disconnect between investment in technology and productivity is sometimes called the Salo computer paradox. If computers make everything faster, why did American business slow down after adopting new technology? Economists have argued the reasons for years. But from this productivity paradox, we learn a basic lesson in the science of getting things done. Spending more money on new technology doesn't automatically increase output. Or to put it another way, sometimes the best way to accomplish more is to do less. Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt. And I'm Megan Hyatt-Miller. And this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast to help you win at work, succeed at life, and lead with confidence. And in this episode, we're going to talk about productivity investments that pay for themselves. And we'll learn that new technology and productivity hacks aren't always the best value. And I'll show you how to get more done by investing in your own margin. That's right. On today's podcast, we're going to explore the productivity paradox and reveal the investments you can make that will bring the greatest payoff. We'll also hear from productivity expert Cal Newport on the importance of investing in your own time. And we'll have a visit from our own Susie Barber to talk us through the ins and outs of delegating your work to others. So why do you think that those investments didn't pay off? Because it was definitely counterintuitive. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think we have to start by recognizing that there was a lot happening in those decades. Mm -hmm. We had the oil embargo, increased regulation, a lot of stuff happening at a macro level that impeded productivity. Mm -hmm. Some companies also mismanaged their IT investment. Everybody got crazy. They went out and bought all this stuff. Well, they didn't know anything yet, right? Right. They didn't know anything yet. And it took a lot to get a lot of investment in those old punch card systems and then Mm -hmm. later the more sophisticated ones to get any productivity out of them. Mm -hmm. And it was disruptive at first, but there was a learning curve. Yeah. And adapting offices to a new way to working. You know, I remember even when the electronic typewriter came on, you know, that changed everything in the office. Mm -hmm. And then there were computers. I can actually remember back to when this started. I bought one of those (laughs) very first IBM computers. And there was a a huge learning curve to just learning how to use it. So it, it took a while, like any investment normally would. But it illustrates the principle that we try to boost productivity by doing more things faster. And that's not always the case, that that 
works. In fact, I would say that most of the times it doesn't work and it puts us on a, on a rat race or on a treadmill where we're going faster, but we're actually getting less done. Mm-hmm. So in that environment, what happens? We look for hacks, we look for quick fixes, we look for gadgets, but we should be doing actually less work. The problem is not the technology, like as if we get better technology, we'll do more productive work. The problem is we've got to evaluate the work we're doing. Mm-hmm. And we've got to uh, cull out the stuff we shouldn't be doing at all. And that's where I think a lot of productivity systems go wrong. So what do you think are some of the productivity fads that have come along over the years that have turned out to be a real fail? Well, one of the biggest ones is multitasking. Oh, yeah. Right? The idea that you can do more than one thing at a time, which the science completely disproves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do what's called micro-slicing. So you mm. can do one task and then move to another task and it looks like you're multitasking because you're doing several tasks in quick sequence. Mm-hmm. But the ro- the problem with that is that it actually slows down. You slow you down in the switching between those tasks. Yeah. And so you're less productive than if you would just stay focused on one thing until mm-hmm. you got it. It's kind of like the old, you know, rub your tummy while you pat your head thing. You can't really do it. It's the same no. in life. <laughs> yeah. You can kind of go back and forth very quickly. So another major productivity fail our devices. Yes, indeed. I mean, who has uh, not felt their productivity take a nosedive, especially after being up high on the hopes that it might be your salvation when you started integrating all those devices in your life? It's just crazy. Well, part of it is that the promise of it and the reality of it are usually two different things. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a gap there. So I remember when the Palm Pilots came out, and I mm-hmm. thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have this computing power in my pocket. But then you realize, no, I got to sync this with my computer and it doesn't always work. And the apps that I'd like to have don't always work with the other apps that I want to use. Then there was the BlackBerry. Mm-hmm. Remember the BlackBerry? Is that before your time? Uh, yeah, not, not quite. Probably just a little bit, but it was affectionately known as the Crackberry yes. for a reason. Yes, because it was addicting. Yeah. Right? That was kind of like the beginning of the addiction. I want to say this. I stood up in front of the executives at Thomas Nelson Publishers in a big meeting where I really wanted everybody to be focused. And I said, I want you to turn off your Blackberries because people were looking at them all the time. Right. You know, you were never not connected, mm-hmm. right? And and plus it was kind of fun because you could do, you felt like you were doing business faster. Or you felt like you could out. do something else than pay, in, pay attention in a meeting. Right. So right. I asked people to turn it off and no one knew where the off button was. No one knew how to turn it off. Wow. I literally had to show them how to turn it off. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we had the iPhone, and that changed everything. Yep. And now we've got essentially the computing power of a Cray computer or more in our back pocket. Think about how many family vacations have been ruined because of devices. People checking email, you know, for the first time. I mean, that's a new, relatively new idea when you think of, of human history. Um, how many meetings have been interrupted or have not been attended well, even though bodies were in the room? <laughs> and this they, doesn't help productivity. No, it doesn't help productivity at all. Or it doesn't help productivity do what it's supposed to do, which is enable us to spend time on what matters most. Well, I remember being in a in a meeting, this was years ago, where everybody was bringing their laptops and their digital devices, and nobody was present. Nobody right. was focused on the issue at hand. That's yeah. not productive. No. You know, there's no reason to have a meeting. You're spending hours and a lot of money to have a bunch of people present to solve a problem, mm-hmm. and yet they're not solving it because they're right. not present. Yep. It's that simple. 
So we're going to talk about now the productivity investments that we can make that really pay for themselves. We kind of know what doesn't work, but now we're going to talk about what does work. And you've identified uh, three for us to talk about today. Investment number one, create more margin for yourself by eliminating tasks. Here's the problem with most task management systems. They talk to you about how to sort tasks, how to categorize them, how to arrange them. The problem is that the question about evaluating whether the task should ever make it into your task management system is rarely discussed. Right. It's just basically pedal faster. That's right. And as a result, people have these impossibly long lists that they're Mm -hmm. trying to manage, and they spend more time managing the lists than actually doing the work. And there's got to be a filter, something that enables you to slow down and focus on what's most important. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that we teach in our course, Free to Focus, and is a part of the Full Focus Planner, is the idea of your daily big three. Mm-hmm. You know, that you can have sort of this junk drawer of other tasks that you can get to that are sort of the trivial tasks, but they're not going to make or break your day. Right. Or your business. Or your business. But if you can focus on three important tasks every day, mm-hmm. that can be a game changer. The only way you can get there is by eliminating tasks, by asking yourself, am I the best person to do this? Could this be automated? Does it even need to be done? And so often we're in meetings that had a a purpose at one point, but they've outlived their usefulness and they need to be deleted. Same thing with other routine tasks or workflows that we kind of go through Mm -hmm. that we need to stop periodically and ask ourselves, can I eliminate it? Can I get rid of this? How has creating more margin in this way affected your productivity? Well, it's been huge for this reason, because I've been able to focus not on just my output, but on the quality of my output. Mm -hmm. So when I focus on fewer tasks, I'm able to give more mental focus, more emotional energy, and really be creative Mm -hmm. in the solutions. And I feel like in my own career, in the last two years, I've been more productive than at any other time Mm -hmm. in my career. And yet I'm doing less than I've ever done. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm basically got my weekends free. I'm taking a month-long sabbatical, lots of vacations. All that stuff works because I'm doing less. But what I am doing is more important, Mm -hmm. more focused, more creative. Really high leverage. Yes. So recently we chatted with Cal Newport on the importance of investing in your own time. And here's what he had to say. Something interesting you'll notice if you study people who produce really valuable things is that they don't tend to care so much about how much they work. These tend not to be the people who are very busy, who are frantically on their phone, who are up late, slinging emails back and forth and jumping around on the social media platforms to make sure that their latest thought is known. Instead, they tend to prioritize with a laser-like focus, deep work, which is full, unbroken concentration on doing the thing they're best at doing. Now, the thing about deep work is you actually have to understand the nuances of its definition. For a session of work to count as deep work, you have to be giving a task full, unbroken concentration with no distraction for a long period of time. Now, what gets people often is the no distraction piece because people often don't count little things, such as a glance at a phone or a glance at an inbox. They'll say, Cal, I am primarily just working on this hard thing. And who cares if for 10 seconds I glance at an inbox? But we know from research, even a quick glance can be devastating to your ability to produce things with your brain. Even a quick context switch, even if it lasts just five seconds, can be sufficient to reduce your cognitive capacity for 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes after that. So you're producing lower quality results at a slower rate. So the people who really succeed prioritize 
intense concentration with zero distraction and zero context switches. It's almost like a superpower, the level of productivity this allows them to actually accomplish with the time they spend working. But the flip side of that is they're not that busy. You do deep work for four hours in a day, you're producing as much as any of the top minds in this country are able to produce. Everything outside of that is just the busyness that surrounds it. And so that explains this paradox that I often often observe and find to be fascinating. The most value producing people don't work a ton, but when they're working, they are in deep, fully concentrated, non-distracted mode. And what they're able to produce with those hours is really hard to accomplish any other way. So let's go on to investment number two. This may be my favorite. It's something I love, but it's automate recurring tasks using templates. You are really kind of a geek about this. I'm kind of (laughs) the template king of this. You are. And so in Free to Focus, I talk about four types of automation. And today I want to focus on template automation. But the idea is anytime you do something, you ask yourself the question, will I be doing this again? Mm -hmm. So if it's an email that I'm writing or if it's a speech that I'm going to give, or some kind of workflow that I'm doing, am I going to be doing it again? And for me, that's a trigger. If I say to myself, I'm going to be doing it again, now I'm going to create a template. Uh I'm going to engineer right the first time so that I can save time in the future. Let me give you an example. Take an email template, right? So let's say that I continually respond to a a request, like somebody asked me, uh, would I be open to speaking at at, at a certain engagement? Mm Mm-hmm. So in the past, I'd expend a lot of energy to write a thoughtful response to a request like that, Mm -hmm. when really what I needed was some standard pieces of information in order to make a better decision. And this is really why email can feel so overwhelming, because it takes all this horsepower to answer every single uh, request that comes in. Because we're reinventing the the wheel every single time. So I ended up in this process of coming up with a series of, I don't know, 50 or 60 templates. I took the most common requests that I was asked. And I said, okay, I'm going to compose a very thoughtful response that I can use and reuse over and over again. Um, Another example, one of the things that we do a lot of at our company is webinars. Mm -hmm. And we've learned through doing hundreds of these now, what's kind of the best sequence, what's the best uh, way to lay out the content. And so we created a template. So we don't have to think through that every time or try to reinvent it. And also so we don't miss stuff. So Automating recurring tasks using templates is a great way to get more productive. So one of the objections that might come up for leaders around this area is that they feel like it might feel it might be impersonal if they use a template, whether it's an email template or maybe for some kind of project that they do on a routine basis that would sort of start to feel canned or cheesy yeah. or something like that. So how do you overcome that part of it? Yeah, I rarely use the template as it's written. But I use it as a kind of a place to start, realizing that it's about 90% of what I want to say. And then I can personalize it. Sometimes it's just a personal paragraph at the beginning where I acknowledge, you know, having talked to that person recently or something that I've read on Facebook about them or something that that makes it feel less canned. Mm -hmm. But then I get into the canned part of it because it's repetitive information or repetitive questions or resources I want to Mm -hmm. suggest. Why reinvent that every time? Because really all the person needs is the information. Sure. And then I'll typically close it out with something personal. So I'll put a wrapper on it, so to speak, so that it's more personal. So yeah, we have templates for meetings. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to think through the structure of a, a meeting over over again. Uh, goal templates. Mm-hmm. So those are part of the full focus planner. We've provided those in Evernote in the past. But just anything that's going to be repetitive and recurring, that's what you're looking for. That becomes a candidate for a template. 
So let's talk about investment number three, which is, by the way, my personal favorite. You said number two is your favorite. This is my favorite. Okay. Delegate anything that could be done by someone else. Mm -hmm. And lots of leaders we know resist delegation. In fact, I think most leaders initially resist it. And according to a study published in Basic and Applied Social Psychology, managers are reluctant to empower employees for two reasons. Number one, they tend to see work performed under the control of a supervisor as inherently better. Yep. And number two, managers evaluate work product more highly when they are more self-involved in the production. Big surprise. Right. So in other words, nobody can do it as well as I can. I also think it's about perceived job security. You know, if I'm not doing everything, then am I really adding value? If I if I only do a few things well, is that really going to be enough to, you know, for the people that are above me to want to keep me? Well, we have this weird thing going on in our culture too, where busyness is sort of a badge right. of that is so uh, true. honor, you know? And so like, it's like, well, you know, I want to be doing more. I want to be overwhelmed. I want to appear busy. Right. And so, and and plus it gives them a sense of significance. Right. And a lot of people think nobody can do it as well as I can. Right. And Hashtag I hear that beast mode. Yeah. Or hashtag hustle right? or exactly. whatever. There's like a whole list of those things. But the truth is that delegation produces huge productivity gains. Well, it does because if you think about it, you can't make more time. Right. Unless you delegate. Right. And now you've got somebody else that's doing things that maybe you did previously, but now you're doubling your time or tripling your time or mm-hmm. quadrupling your time. Yeah, because it allows you to focus on what you do best and also on what's most important that only you can do. And it's the best way to use a team, mm-hmm. if you think about it. You're depriving somebody else of the ability to express their gifts when you do work that they could do. And I go back to that Dawson Trotman quote that I've quoted so many times before. Don't do anything that others could or would do when there's so much of importance to be done that others could not or would not do. Mm-hmm. That's the secret to productivity and frankly, career satisfaction. Okay, so in just a few minutes when we come back, we're lucky enough to have in the studio with us today an expert on delegation, Michael Hyatt and Company's very own Susie Barber, who is our Senior Director of Operation. And she's here to talk with us today about the ins and outs of delegation. But first, let's talk about a really neat new webinar that we have coming up. Yeah, I've got a webinar that I'm really excited about. Webinars are my favorite, by the way. I know. You I love, love doing, doing webinars. That. But we're going to be talking about harmful habits that we, especially those of us that are high achievers, do every day that we don't really realize. And so part of the webinar is naming the traps. The other part is coaching you through how to conquer them. Mm-hmm. So that's really where the transformation is going to be. This will make you a productivity ninja and It'll keep you from getting sucked down the rabbit hole of things that appear to be productive, but actually are traps. They'll make you less productive. I promise you will find yourself in this webinar in surprising ways. There are things that you are doing that you don't even know that you're doing that are getting in the way of your productivity and you can't afford not to know what they are. And that's all in this free webinar that we're going to be doing on a number of different dates, a number of different times. All the information is at freetofocus.com slash traps. And did I mention it's free? All right. So we are back with Susie Barber, who is our Senior Director of Operations. Susie is 
my right-hand woman. And Susie's expertise is really in executive support. So for many years, she has run teams of executive assistants supporting high-level executives in a number of different organizations. And so she's an expert at delegation. She's seen what it looks like when it goes well, and how to, she knows how to facilitate it. And she also knows what it looks like when it goes Badly. Oh, so badly. <laughs> so welcome, Susie. We're glad that you're here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So talk to us uh, a little bit about why you think leaders struggle so much with letting go of tasks. Yeah. So I think there's a few reasons. I think Michael kind of touched on this earlier, but kind of thinking that you do what you're doing best and better than anyone else can do it mm-hmm. is part of it, um, which in a lot of cases is not true. Um, <laughs> so arrogant. Put, put that out there right away. Um, yeah, I think there's um, some fear associated with it. And what's interesting for a lot of leaders sometimes is I think the fear, if you really sat with it, has to do with if I'm focusing on only the most important things, am I afraid of um, what actual success at those things looks like? Oh. And what if I'm like doing my most meaningful work? Because sometimes that might come across harder um, than easier tasks that you can just knock off your hmm. list. And so you feel accomplished even though you're not doing something that's probably truly important for you to uniquely contribute to. So, so it's kind of a way of procrastinating mm-hmm. the really important work yeah. in favor of doing other work that gives you a sense of momentum, but it's not really that important. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Or kind of playing small, it sounds like. Playing small. That's yeah. a big part of it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think fear is kind of at the root of a lot of it, whether it's job security or that success or those kind of things. So when leaders don't delegate like that, um, what's the cost? So I think there's probably truly a financial cost if you think about it. You've said that a lot where if you were to break down what your hourly rate is as a leader and how much you're paying someone essentially to check emails or to answer a phone call or listen to all these voicemails, um, it's pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. So I think one, there's a financial cost, but I think obviously the biggest cost is not so easily measured. And that has to do a lot with you not um, achieving the things that you're really meant to do and uniquely gifted at. That's good. I think so, too. So what do you think about uh, mistakes that are the most common? What are the biggest delegation mistakes that you've seen leaders make over and over again? Right. So first and foremost is not delegating. (laughs) (laughs) That's a problem. That's a problem. Um, Yeah. So once you get past that, I think people tend to – delegate without giving proper context and instruction. So Mm. we don't um, slow down sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that's where you always hear people say, it's faster if I just do it myself. Right. It's really not if you have to repeat that over and over again. Mm. But initially when you're training someone, it is slower to train someone on it. So once you train someone on the task, um, then it can be done and it saves you a lot of time in the future if you kind of have a long-range vision. Um, And I think sometimes leaders easily lose sight of that. And so they don't take the time to kind of slow down to give direction and instruction so that it's successful the first time. Mm -hmm. Do you think delegation is something that comes natural to some leaders but not others? Or is it something that every leader can learn? I think every leader can learn it. Okay. I think there are people who are more naturally inclined to delegation for sure. Okay. Yeah. I I think for me, I'm just thinking back on my own experience. I think it was tough for me. Mm -hmm. I I think a lot of it was just kind of arrogance. I had this sense that nobody's going to do it as well as I can do it. Mm -hmm. And maybe a fear that if I delegated something and it wasn't done up to my standards, that there would be some kind of repercussion either from my boss or from our customers 
Yeah. And so I wanted to make sure it was done right. So I was reluctant to let go of it mm-hmm. until I discovered that there are actually people out there that can do it better than I can do it. Totally. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's common. I think, Megan, you probably, um, knowing you when you first had an executive assistant, yeah. delegation seemed like an easy walk in the park for you. Yeah. I wonder if it actually comes a little easier to women because I think mm-hmm. we're juggling a lot of things all the time and it's sort of like you're not going to make it unless you do. You know, well, I don't level. know about that. You don't like, think so? like, for example, your mom – Really struggled with delegation. Now, I, I will tell you for her, I think part of it was that she didn't feel like she was worthy. You know, in other words, she ought to be able to do all the things that she Right. Was She's doing. had a different mindset about it. Different mindset about it. Like, yeah. well, I, I should do the housework. I should do the cooking. I should do all this right. stuff. Yeah. And it probably was a little bit of a mindset, kind right. of a traditionalist, you know, that's a woman's job. Right, right. And I think she eventually got over that and now she's unbelievable. Yeah. But it took some training. But it also, to Susie's point, it's something anybody can learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, what's really funny is when you think about me, right? So I'm an Enneagram 8. If you think about personality kind of profiles, Megan and I share That command. means she's the boss. <laughs> <laughs> Megan and I share command and strategy and um, some other kind of similar gifts, communication in our top five strength finders. Um, we're both oldest um, siblings, yep. I think all those kind of things can contribute. So I joke with my husband often that if he ever does decide to run for president, I'm confident that I can handle the staff at the White House. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, he has no ambitions of that. So, But I am saying, I do want to say there are people who are more naturally mm-hmm. gifted probably for delegation. And those are kind of people probably that when they're younger, you label them as bossy kids or things like that, or natural leaders or strong-willed. Um, but what I will say is even if with you, if you have a natural advantage, for that, you can improve. So I've definitely learned, we have some systems we follow at Michael Hyatt and Company over time to be good at delegation. So whether you're naturally inclined or you're not, it's something that you can learn. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, speaking of systems that we mm-hmm. have at Michael Hyatt and Company, is to talk about the five levels of delegation. Sure. Because this, to me, kind of takes the risk out of it. Totally. And makes it easier for leaders to delegate, knowing that they've got more control over the process. You're not just talking about abdication, you're talking about delegation. So let's talk about those levels. Yeah, absolutely. So we have five levels of delegation that we use at our company that, and I really love this framework, it really helps to kind of clarify things. And the first one is our level one delegations, where we're saying, do exactly what I have asked you to do. So here's the plan, please do it, please don't deviate from it. And then level two would be to research the topic and then report back to me. So don't make any decisions, don't execute, but get me some information and bring it back. Level three is to research the topic, outline the options, and make a recommendation to me. So if you were me, based on the research that you've done, what do you want me to do? Now it's starting to get interesting. This is yeah. one of my favorite ones, actually. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It really takes a lot of the work out of it, out of it for the it leader. Um, because and the you can just Yeah, totally. And you can just say yes or no on that recommendation, which is great. Um, and then level four is to make a decision and then tell me what you did. And that's awesome. That really communicates trust in your team. Mm-hmm. And it really kind of just gets something fully off of your plate, which is yeah. great. But you still get that report back. Um, and then level five, which is probably my favorite, is <laughs> make whatever decision you think is best. I'm taking this off my plate. I'm giving it to you. Get it done. I love that. And okay. if you hire people you can trust, then that is something that's easy to do. So Totally. Last night I was having uh, dinner with Daniel Harkavy, who is my co-author in Living Forward. Mm-hmm. Daniel has a company called Building Champions. Yes. He is a master delegator. So he told me last summer he took a three-month sabbatical. 
Whoa. Whoa. So like this, my head exploded because I, you know, I've taken a one month sabbatical and I, you know, you're feeling pretty good about my yourself. chest, feeling yeah. like I'm pretty good about it. <laughs> but he took three months off. I said, okay, I got to ask you, how often did you check in with the office? And he said, mm. um, I think about three times, but wow. basically once a month. And I said, and you were fully confident. He said, oh, it was awesome. He said, the business improved while I was gone. Everything got better. He says, I got an amazing team, but that's, that freed him up. Interestingly, two of his kids got married last summer, which when he set the sabbatical, he didn't know of before. Oh, so he wow. was able to totally be present for all of that wow. and amazing. pitch it on that. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. That's awesome. But that's, that's what delegation can mean. It's yeah. powerful. It's yeah. more time to do what matters most. It may not look like a three-month sabbatical, but it might look like you getting to work on the work that you really enjoy, something we call your desire zone and free mm-hmm. to focus, where you're passionate and you're proficient. And that that could be a game changer. Totally. All right. So Susie, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, some of our listeners are brand new to delegating. Maybe they're in a new leadership position where all of a sudden that's either necessary or a possibility. And then some of our leaders are really seasoned uh, in their profession or in their role, and they're pretty good at this already. So what would be the delegations that you would recommend to someone who's brand new to delegating and maybe even uh, leadership formally itself. And then what would you recommend for somebody who would consider themselves a little more mature in their um, delegation capacity? And what would be ways to optimize that? Sure. That's a great question. So I think one of the things that everybody can do to be successful at delegation is to build in time in your schedule to delegate. Mm. And so what I mean by that is make a part of your quick morning routine. It doesn't need to be long when you're kind of starting up um, your workday to think about the things that you could get off of your plate and constantly be evaluating your task list and handing things over. If you're new to leadership and and, and whether you've been doing it for a long time, this applies too. Um, another thing that you can build into routine is regular meetings with your staff for the purpose of delegation. So especially if you have a virtual assistant or an executive assistant, you want to be having those meetings where there's an easy touch point for you to hand off tasks Mm -hmm. so that you don't always have to be doing that through email. Um, There are some technologies that I think make uh, delegation really easy. Slack is a great resource for that um, so that we don't have a thousand emails with tasks anymore, uh, Mm -hmm. speaking for all the virtual assistants of the world. And so task managers, all those things can work for that. That, but just build in regular time to delegate in your schedule, I think mm-hmm. is really important. Um, and then clear communication, just realizing that you need to slow down when you give a task out, especially if you're new to leadership, mm-hmm. and make sure that you really outline the steps so that when you are delegating, the person is set up for success. Mm-hmm. Um, the very last thing that I would say, and this is something that I love that you and Michael do all the time, and so if you're a more experienced leader, this really applies to you, is ask the people around you. Ask your spouse. Yeah, Ask your great. kids. Ask your team, especially, especially if you have an assistant, ask them, what am I doing and what am I holding? onto that you could take over. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I've challenged Michael from the very beginning of the time that we've worked together. Anytime he's asked me that, I remember saying, hey, you don't have to do every social media post back in the day. And this is when That's there was so just, funny was like to think of yes, or webinars. <laughs> and and the, there was just a few of us. And so we've made some huge strides as a business um, from answering those kind of questions. And so as a leader, make sure that you're asking those questions. And regularly asking, because yes. you may have asked at the beginning of that relationship with an executive 
executive assistant, for example. But as your business matures and as time goes on, you need to reevaluate because it may either be irrelevant things that you ask to delegate, or there may be new challenges that you face that are are you know creeping back onto your task list that don't need to be there. You Absolutely. know, it just occurred to me that that if you want to develop your team and if you want to see your team grow, you've got to delegate. You do. If you hold on to all this stuff, they're never going to learn. And if you delegate it, they do higher level stuff Mm -hmm. that they really enjoy. They make a better contribution. And this has been shocking to me. They actually do it better than I could have imagined it. Mm -hmm. And that happens over and over again. Okay. I have one last question. Mm -hmm. We could just, by the way, talk all day. I have like 14 questions in my head. I'm having to really trim it back. (laughs) I love this topic. But one question for me is, what do you say to the leader who's listening to this, who says, well, that's all fine and well for you guys to talk about. I can't afford to bring on somebody full-time or I can't afford an executive assistant. What do you say to that person? Yeah, absolutely. So I th- I would first and foremost challenge you to make sure that that's not a limiting belief, that you're not really look because there's a way to get executive assistance for very inexpensive um, for as little as five hours per week. So first and foremost, if you feel like you need that support, I would challenge you to make sure that's not a limiting belief and to ask yourself what would have to be true in your business to make room for this. Because usually if you'll make that investment, um, it'll just have amazing returns for you as a leader and actually produce a lot more in your business to free you up. So first and foremost, challenge that statement and that belief. But there are people who um, don't have anybody to delegate to. And whether you're in the process of needing to hire someone or bring someone on, or you're in a position where you don't have people under you, delegation doesn't just apply to your professional environment. And so you can also start at home. I know virtual assistants and executive assistants who hire virtual assistants for five hours a week to do their budgets and to do some of their administrative tasks so that they're more freed up at home and can focus kind of Uh when they're working. So I just think there's always options. There's ways to delegate that are not always human. You know what I mean? Like we've talked about automation and kind of getting things off your plate. There's ways to hire services to do things for you. So Mm -hmm. it's not directly an EA, Um, but always just kind of be open, challenge that limiting belief and start somewhere, start small and see. I think once you start seeing the results of that, it's a no brainer option and it grows easily from there. Well, and I want to say too, to solopreneurs, right. because I was in this boat for a while after I left the the corporate world. Yeah. You think, well, I really can't afford that. You mm-hmm. can't afford not to do that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because here's what happens. When you delegate the lower level work, especially the work that you can't bill for, mm-hmm. it frees you up to bill for more hours. Mm-hmm. And you're going to make more than it's going to cost you to pay an executive assistant. And so that difference between what you make in those billable hours and what you pay for that executive assistance is margin. Mm-hmm. And it gets you more and more focused on what you do best. I tell you, I tracked this for like the first three years. Every time I hired someone, my personal income went up. That's amazing. Which is counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. But every time I hired someone from the first person I hired from Belay Solutions, Mm -hmm. my income went up. Amazing. And Belay, by the way, is a company that provides executive assistance on a contract basis. They're friends of ours, and you can hire somebody for even five hours a week, which is actually- I think they have a 10-hour week we... minimum now. Oh, they do have a 10-hour yeah. week? Okay. But you can start small. You don't have to start at 40 hours a week or That's a full-time right. employee, which is great. Yeah, test it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know what? If, if it doesn't work for you, great. But I, I we have clients constantly tell us, this has been the thing that's made the, the biggest difference. They've seen the biggest jump in their income when they've learned to delegate, when they've hired somebody to help them. Well, Susie, we are so grateful that you've been here with us today. Like I said, we just keep talking and asking questions. I'm sure our listeners feel the same way. But do you have any final thoughts on delegation for leaders before we let you go? Sure. I would just say do it. Make it happen. (laughs) 
love it. Like this, the reason we could go on and on about this and geek out on this is because we've experienced Mm -hmm. immense transformation from delegating successfully and immense growth. And so you want that. You want to do that. So get brave about it. Make it happen. If you've been doing it for a long time, evaluate it. See what else you can do Mm -hmm. um, to free yourself up, to focus on your most important tasks. And um, if you're just getting started, go for it and be a good delegator because it really is transformational for yourself and for those that you lead. So yeah, jump in. Awesome. Thanks, Susie. So today we've talked about productivity investments that pay for themselves. And we've discovered that you can make great productivity gains by doing fewer things rather than doing more things faster. As we come in for a landing, I just want to remind you that it's worth taking the risk to invest in your own margin. Dad, do you have any final thoughts for today? Yeah, just to remind people that when you're evaluating your task list, you can't just accept every request, every incoming thing, and just assume that you're going to be the only person doing it. Mm -hmm. It's important to run it through a filter, and the filter that we've shared today is to eliminate, to automate, or to delegate. Mm -hmm. So just because something has to be done doesn't mean it has to be done by you, could be done by a machine, could be done by a person. But you don't have to do everything. If you're feeling overwhelmed, that's a choice. Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. As we close, I want to thank our sponsor, Leaderbox. It provides automated personal development in a box. Check it out at leaderbox.com. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, you can get the show notes and a full transcript online at lead2.win. Hey guys, thanks again for joining us. We never take that for granted. And we really would encourage you, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your colleagues about it. Please leave a review because that really helps us to get visibility for the show. Do it wherever you listen to podcasts. This program is copyrighted by Michael Hyatt and Company, all rights reserved. Our producer is Nick Jaworski. Our writers are Joe Miller, Lawrence Wilson, Mandy Revicchio, and Jeremy Lott. Our recording engineer is Mike Burns. Our production assistant is Alicia Curry. And our intern is Winston. We invite you guys to join us for our next episode where we'll be discussing the character advantage in leadership. Until then, lead to win.